Okay, please turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 4 through 8. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. What is it that makes some fellow believers speak like the following at his 35-year-old wife and seven-month-old baby daughter's funeral? Some of you might remember back in 2001, this missionary family was in a plane over Peru And the Peruvian Air Force mistook them for a drug cartel plane and shot them. The pilot wasn't hit. The plane got down. Jim Bowers, his wife, and his baby daughter were instantly killed. He says at the funeral, Most of all, I want to thank my God. He's a sovereign God. I'm finding that out more now. Could this really be God's plan for Ronnie, his wife, and Charity? God's plan for Corey, his son, and me, and our family? I'd like to tell you why I believe so. Why I'm coming to believe so. Ronnie and Charity were instantly killed by the same bullet. Would you say that that is a stray bullet? And it did not reach Kevin, the pilot, who was right in front of Charity. It stayed in Charity. This was a sovereign bullet. Those people who did that simply were used by God. Whether you want to believe it or not, I believe it. They were used by Him, by God, to accomplish His purpose in this. 
Maybe similar to the Roman soldiers whom God used to put Christ on the cross. So what is it that causes fellow believers to say stuff like that? I think the answer is verses in the Bible. Much like what we will see in our text this morning. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us, by Your Spirit, ears to hear what is plainly written on the pages of Scripture. We're desperate. We are desperate to have You cause us to believe what You are saying in Scripture. And so help me unfold what is here in this passage. Help me do it clearly and simply in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, uh, for just a moment, pick up what we've seen in the larger context over the last few weeks. Peter has been saying, keep coming, believer, to Christ. Keep coming and desiring and feeding upon the pure milk of the Word of God and of the Gospel. Because as you are doing that, God is up to something. He's making you living stones, not dead inanimate objects that make up the temple in Jerusalem, but living stones being fashioned one to another to another. This one big huge thing called the church, a holy temple to the Lord. In order that, in all that you do, you may be in this life offering as priests, acceptable sacrifices through Jesus Christ. That's what we've seen. He's not done. Now this week, in verses 6 through 8, he quotes three passages from the Old Testament in order to support what he has just said. And to do, first of all, to support what he says in verses 4 to 5. This glorious positive thing. God is building a spiritual temple. And if you're a believer, that's you. Then in verses 7 to 8, he emphasizes the negative side of God's working in relation to Christ and the stone. So, in verse 6, Peter sees in the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 16, that believing, coming to faith and clinging to, trusting and believing in the stone, he sees that in that text there that God spoke through Isaiah, he says, that secures you safely forever. And so he quotes it in order to support what we saw last week in verses 4 to 5. He says, you see, it's right here in Isaiah 28. Quote, Behold, 
I am laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone. Chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And so he sees that 700 years before Jesus came to be a real human being, Isaiah prophesied that he would be this cornerstone, meaning the main foundational stone, the plumb bob stone, the stone that must be laid so correctly because the rest of the building, the temple, will come off of that cornerstone. And so Isaiah prophesies that God will be doing a new work. He will be constructing a new building to replace that physical building in Jerusalem. And this building is made up of people. Real human beings who are coming to faith in Jesus and becoming priests. And he says, note, the people who believe in Him will not be put to shame. What, that, it's amazing how context for all of our lives, what we're not going through or what we are going through, it is amazing how we actually hear words. Sometimes we really hear them. Other times we just don't. This is Peter. He doesn't know exactly when. He knows it's coming. He does know that. But within two years of writing this, he will be dragged against his will and be tortured to death upside down. It is this kind of stuff that he is quoting Isaiah. Those who are living, believing, clinging to Christ will never be put to shame. Or, what do you mean? Disappointed. He's saying if you build your life on this, the Gospel, on Christ, there will ultimately never be a time, even through the humiliation of being crucified, Upside down in this world. Or mocked. Or divorced. Or ridiculed. There will never be a time where you will down the road say, darn it, I wasted my life. You will be vindicated in the end. And then in verse 7, notice, he draws this lesson by saying, therefore. That's what he's doing. Or the ESV puts it, so means the same thing. Therefore, here's his lesson. So the honor is for you who believe. Now, depending on what translation you're looking at, you're thinking, huh? But mine doesn't say it that way. So here, just for three minutes. How are we supposed to understand that sentence? In other words, is Peter saying here in verse 7, To you, therefore, who believe, He, Jesus, the stone, He is precious to you. Is that what his point is here? 
Or is He saying to you who believe, is this honor that I just talked about? In other words, is He saying the point here is the way that believers subjectively perceive of Christ? To me, He is, and this is true for believers, He is valuable, precious. He made that clear in chapter 1. Believers, he says, are those, though you don't see Him, you love Him. You rejoice with a joy that's, that's inexpressible and filled with glory. That's your experience. It's not the experience of unbelievers. Okay, so is His point your perception of Christ, or is His point here that if you're a believer, this means God has honored you. Didn't say you deserved it, but He's honored you with what he just said there in that Isaiah quote. Now, this is here, here's how the King James Version, the New King James, translate it. Essentially this way. Now to you who believe, this stone to you is precious. The New American Standard Bible translates it. This precious value then... Is for you who believe. And they, so they just keep it ambiguous, I think. The NIV translates it. Now to you who believe, again, this stone to you is precious. Okay. I don't think those translations are accurate in what Peter's saying. Just from the original and what I'm looking at. And almost all commentators on 1 Peter agree with me. The ESV, which is one of the later translations, of course, also agrees. This is the way it ought to be understood. What he just said, this, that honor of never being put to shame is for you who believe. He's saying, go on. Keep coming. Keep embracing Jesus because you can be confident that in the end you will never be put to shame. This honor is for you who believe. Now, the big question is in this text, why does he go on? Why does he go on and now grab two texts from the Old Testament that are negative? Why does he go on to emphasize the negative aspect of Christ, his meaning, his coming? I mean, especially in our culture, that sounds like, let's just be positive, bro. Uh, And one of the biggest names in Christendom in America. He makes it very clear. Because he's asked, how come you never preach on that or that? Oh, I never preach on anything that's negative. Of course, many of us think, oh, then how, do you, how do you ever preach the Bible? if?" Okay. So it's, why does Peter do what he does here? Why does he just stay positive? But instead, now he's going to bring up the doom of those who reject the stone. Let's, let's read it together at the be- middle 
of verse 7 through verse 8. He goes on now and says, But for those who do not believe, and then he grabs Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, and he grabs Isaiah chapter 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. So, he says, in contrast to believers, unbelievers, he says, they are what was predicted in Psalm 118 and in Isaiah 8. And this is not peripheral text here from the Old Testament. Jesus knew it well and quoted it to the religious leaders. And then after him, after his resurrection, Peter in the book of Acts quoted it when he was before the Sanhedrin, saying, The stone which the builders rejected, he means you, religious leaders in Jerusalem, the builders. The stone which the builders you rejected became the cornerstone of what God is really doing now through Christ. Okay. So far, just a little synopsis. What we, what we see that Peter's doing so far, he quotes Isaiah, okay, the first quote of Isaiah about Jesus being the cornerstone. And then he draws two conclusions from it in verses 7 to 8. First conclusion, this is great news for you who believe. And then he draws the second conclusion. It's really bad news if you don't or for those who don't. He says, this is who Jesus is also. He is the stone of stumbling. He is the rock of offense. And at the end of verse 8, then, after he's done with the quote, he interprets the negative side of Jesus as the cornerstone by saying, they stumble because they disobey the Word. That means they, they trip over it. Now, he doesn't mean the Bible on the floor or a scroll physically they're tripping over. It's metaphorical. He means the message of the Gospel. He means the truth of Jesus, and you preach that clearly so that people can do what they're going to do, which is be saved or trip, stumble. He says they are offended at it and reject it. That's why he says, because they disobey the word. Now, a, here, here's the real literal translation of the way Peter actually says it. They stumble at the Word because of disobedience. Just, I'm not going to argue it right now just for time's sake, but all over the New Testament, I can show you text after text where the word disobedience 
to the Scripture is synonymous with unbelief. This is what he's saying. They hear the Word. They hear the Gospel. And this is what happens to them. Yuck. Yuck. Don't want it. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to do what it says. Come and fall down and cling to me and trust in nothing in yourself. Turn away from trusting in all the idols. I won't do it. Watch how the Apostle Paul illustrates this very New Testament reality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, this is how it works. Here's his missionary journey. Quote, starting somewhere about verse 23. He says, we go, we preach. Here's the word that people stumble at. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block. There's his word. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's foolishness to everybody else. Non-Jews, Gentiles. That's why He came? Yeah. It's one of the reasons He came. And that is the natural response to the true Gospel. Period. Unless something happens according to the next verse. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but, he doesn't have a third category of people. There are only two, Jews and non-Jews. That's, that's, hum, that's humanity. But he says from that pool, he says, but to those who are called from among both Jews and Greeks, to them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, so Paul illustrates the same thing. The Word goes, the Gospel goes, and people Get offended at it. Defensive. They stumble and fall flat on their face. But notice, he says, but God calls some. And therefore something changes in them where that doesn't happen anymore. They become believers. So he calls some. Those who are called, they believe. To them, look at that. Christ is the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. I see it. But He doesn't call everybody. He leaves some in their hard-hearted rebellion and disobedience. And that is what Peter says here in our text. They stumble at the Word because of their disobedience when they hear it. A lack of faith. Okay, now, that's what he says at this point. Instead of putting his pen down or going on to what we'll start to see next week, you know, you're this holy priesthood, this glorious nation. He adds one more clause. Why in the world does he do it? I mean, Peter. It's bad enough that you didn't just stay on the positive, but you go negative with these texts. Come on! That's a bummer. I don't want to think about that. Why do you do that? Okay, okay. It's bad enough you do that. But why in the world do you add that last clause at the end of verse 8? 
You say, they stumble at the Word because of disobedience. And then he adds this almost unintelligible statement to most human beings and to most Christians. As they were destined to do. When I used to read that text as a new believer, and I mean for the first years, when I used to read that text and many other texts like it in the Bible, I did not believe it. I mean, I, this is what I know what went on in my mind. I thought it had to mean something different than what it seems to plainly say. I don't think I'm alone. And I think there's, a, there's at least two reasons why that, what I just said, is the experience of most all people come to faith in Christ. One is this. That was the natural, human, man-centered, not God-centered, worldview that I brought to the text. Which would not allow me, and I was truly born again, truly saved, I'm no more saved now, but would not allow me to, to accept just, okay, I'll accept that, like I accepted lots of other positive stuff, or that, that fit with my so-called worldview already. I could not accept that God appointed or purposed that unbelief that He's talking about. The other reason which helps that is that the church world is filled with teachers like I had who either explicitly or implicitly let me know that that is not at all what God is like. Let's look at verse 8 closely. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Look at that word. It means destined. It means or some appointed. That word destined. Now, you've got to think about this. In this context, has already been used once. It's the same Greek verb that he used in verse 6 where he says, I, God, lay, that's the word, Lay or appoint or destine in Zion a stone. Jesus. I, God, destine Jesus to be that stone. That's verse 6. Then in verse 8, the ESV, who knows why they do this? I mean, ah! But they don't translate like they should. The word chi, which means also, but most all the other translations do. If you've got a King James, New King James, New American Standard, they translate correctly. The word also is there. And I think it's really important. Because what he is saying, the flow is this way. In verse 6, God is the one who destined, He placed, He appointed Christ. In verse 8, and He also, there's the word, destined. 
unbelievers. Destined what? They stumble. It's a word because of their hardness of heart, their unbelief, their disobedience to, literally, to this. They were also destined. Let me just give you a couple other uses of the same verb. In the New Testament, you get a feel of how the word is used. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7, quote, It is not for you to know, Jesus says, the times or the epics which the Father has fixed or, or set. Same word. Tithemi is the word. Tithemi. Set, fixed by His own authority. Romans 4.17 Paul writes, As it is written concerning Abraham, a father of many nations, God speaking Abraham, I made or appointed or destined you. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined... Thank goodness if we can say this about ourselves. For God has not destined or appointed us for wrath. But, Christian, He's destined you or appointed you for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. The writer writes, In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He, Tithemi, appointed, destined the heir of all things. And so Peter says in this text, To this, to what? To the stumbling at the Word. In unbelief, they were also destined or appointed. Now, some of you are homeschool mothers. You should know stuff like this. This is a passive verb. Okay, That means that the verb that's happening to the, the people, the unbelievers in this text are being appointed. That's what's happening. The action is being appointed. Which, when it's passive, means those people whom that's happening to are not doing it. That's what it means. It means there's another agent. There's another one who is doing that action to them. In verse 6, it is God the Father who's appointed Christ. And in verse 8, He is also appointed them to their Stumbling. Why does he do it? Why does Peter write it though? See, this is think about this in life, and you, we do it. That's why we're offended at one another as human beings a lot. Why do they have to add that at the end? <laughs> You're always thinking, what was their meaning? Why did they do that? Or, okay, Peter, why do you do this? Because there are literally, Peter, billions of things that are true. Okay, great. Okay, maybe this is true, Peter. But why do you say it? Here, what's the point? You know, I got in my study, laid on the wall, just help me in life. Real simple. Here's life, real simple. You're going to read someone's blog. 
You're going to read a piece of theology, someone's opinion. It could be politics, it could be theology, it could be psychology, but whatever. Three basic questions. What is the person saying? This is whether you're reading or actually you're having a conversation orally. What are they saying? Okay, I think I understand what they're saying now. Okay, you've got to ask the second question. Is it true? Okay, I understand it, and I'm, pretty, I'm convinced that's, that's a good argument. That's true. And you've got to ask the third question. So what? Because there are billions of things that are true. Sometimes you want to ask, even if this were true, if I understood that, okay, that's kind of where they're going. If it were true, I don't really care. I'm not going to waste my time reading that book or that blog or that page. There's only so much time in the day. It's a really, so that's an important question. Okay, Peter, I, th- I, th- I think I'm coming to terms with what you just said. <laughs> I'm con- and, and, and if I got that right, if, if, if the understanding of the text is true, what I've said so far in this sermon, okay, then, uh, I mean, I understood it right. Secondly, then it's true. But I'm just committed to the Bible. I'm committed to the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Okay, but the third one is in, so what? What about it? What's your point? What are you doing this for in this context? Or just get really clear. How in the world is what you're saying here helpful to Jim Bowers after his wife is shot and his seven-month-old daughter? Because Peruvian Air Force pilots mistook the plane to be a drug cartel plane. How is that going to help them? How is it going to help any of us struggling? Life experiencing means all of us Christians. And you're going to know this. In the context, he's going to flow right on into this. How you're to submit to government officials. He didn't, he's not going to say perfect or only when they're right. How you're going to submit if you're a slave. He, a lot of these people are slaves. Not just to your master, but to abusive, unjust masters. And wives with abusive husbands. That's where he's going. And so the question, how is this helpful? Peter... I mean, I just, I, this is what I think he's doing. He's saying suffering Christian. You remember, that's one of the main themes of 1 Peter. It's the suffering letter. It is about suffering in this world from beginning to the end of the letter. He's saying you suffering Christians, for you to go on banking your hope on Christ is right. No matter what that might be causing you. Because why? Even all the rebellion and unbelief in the world around you and for many of the people he's writing to in all these various cities and churches, the unbelief that is affecting them negatively, he's saying none of that defeats ultimately the purposes of God for you. Follow Peter's flow. In this whole context. Jesus. The rejected stone. 
He was predetermined for the foundation of the world, God's eternal Son, to become man and to die on a cross. It wasn't an accident. He was determined to be the cornerstone. Therefore, no matter what would happen to Him, no matter what human unbelief would manifest itself sinfully against Him, to betray Him, spit on him, to slug him, to be Pilate, to be cowardly because of sin, and to hand him over to be tortured on a cross. None of that would undo God's purposes. Period. And that is exactly what Peter says in the book of Acts twice. He makes it crystal clear. He stands in front of the Jewish leaders. And Peter's a Jew. And he says, through the hands, and it means through the minds and through the wills, of sinful people, you took the Messiah and put Him to death. And all of this, he says, was God's predetermined plan according to His choosing foreknowledge. And now he writes here. There's nothing that can undo His purposes in Christ. That seems to be one thing that our brother in Christ, Jim Bauer, has got a hold of. Maybe it's much like the soldiers who put Christ to death. And I think that's also Peter's point by this shocking statement at the end of verse 8. Just read the flow again. When he says, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and, and a rock of offense. And they stumble at the Word because of their disobedience to which they also were destined or appointed. I think he adds that on at the end in order to make it crystal clear, believer, that God is not ever sitting back, wringing His hands, wondering what His universe, which you're a part of, is going to look like in the end. Because He has no control. He has absolute sovereign control over absolutely every huge thing that happens and every flap of every flea's wing. Fleas have wings, don't they? Do they have wings? Do they just jump? They don't have wings. Flies. He's writing in 64 A.D., 63 A.D., 62 A.D., somewhere right around there. Nero is the emperor. And if you know your history, unlike a lot of Roman emperors, Nero was a nut. He was a vicious, crazy nut. Nero did light a bunch of Christians on fire and used them as candles and burned down Rome and blamed it on Christians. 
This is a con- the context. These people are hearing. They're saying, Peter's saying, even that crazy, unbelieving nut, Nero, under whom Peter will be dead in a couple of years. He, Nero, cannot sidetrack God's plan, purposes. That's what he's saying. No, you don't understand. It's because of his unbelief. It's his hatred for God. It's his hatred for Christians that he's going to do this. To this, he also was appointed. His point is, no matter what, you have a a terrible boss, you have an abusive husband, Will Islamic terrorists ram airplanes into the Twin Towers? Nothing can sidetrack God's sovereign purposes. There is no such thing as an unbeliever who can ever stand up and say, I heard that Gospel. I heard this Jesus stuff. I can't wait to that day and I'll say, I defied God by refusing to believe. And God would say, you only think you can. To this, you also were appointed. God is not a human being in His divine nature. He is absolutely sovereign. It is almost impossible to get our minds around it. We might be able to touch it a little bit. But we're called to pray in the midst of the scariness of that reality because I tell you, and many will testify throughout the centuries, there is a depth of comfort that is unimaginable. Especially when you're upside down on a cross. I think the reason, this purpose, that Peter inserts this stunning statement at the end of verse 8 is ultimately to comfort Believers, that's what he's doing. To know that the rejection that they were experiencing in many differing kinds of relationships that are going to come up in the rest of the letter, that that rejection through unbelief of those people that they're experiencing was not only predicted in prophecy hundreds of years before, that's why he quotes Isaiah and he quotes the psalm, true, but it is also Planned by God. Now, how's that comforting? Because it's meant, here's the reality, you're going to suffer to one degree or another. Period. And His purpose is this. It's comforting because it's meant to help them see that their suffering is in the secure hands of a sovereign, loving, Heavenly Father, 
through Jesus Christ. He's saying so, believer, in us today, we're to pursue finding our rest. To pursue finding our rest, our faith, our trust in God. In this reality about God. That He will always, always, ultimately bring about good in whatever happens, if you're a believer. Because we know what He's promised and we know that even in all the evil, whether it's natural evils like earthquakes in Haiti, tsunamis, tornadoes, or the evil that exists because of sin called cancer and all kinds of other debilitating diseases, or whether it's the evil that comes from evil human wills. He's saying, this is never, ever, ever an indication that God is not in sovereign, complete, Absolute control. He is in complete control over your life. So that we can come to believe that all things, according to Romans 8.28, are working together for good. Not to unbelievers, or who will remain unbelievers, or who will die in that unbelief. But they're working together for good to you right now. To believers, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, why is that true in Romans 8? Because the next thing He does now, in the next verse, starting next verse 29, is He gives the reason why that's true when He says, quote, Because those whom He foreknew, really, I'm not going to argue it here, I have before, chose. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He, Jesus, might be the firstfruits among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called to faith. And those whom He called, He also justified before Himself. And those whom He justified, and this is still future, He will also glorify. See, it is that huge biblical gospel foundation that leads to what He says at the end of Romans chapter 8. It leads Him to say, quote, For I am sure that neither Death. Nor life. Both can be hard. Nor angels. Nor rulers. Nor things that are present. Nor things that are yet to come down the road nor any height, nor depth, nor just whatever your mind can imagine, anything 
else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, by His Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, put on the pages of Scripture, is saying to us believers, go on clinging to that rejected, despised cornerstone. Do it no matter what you are going through or may go through. Cling to Him. No matter what other human beings by their evil wills do to you. He's saying God is ultimately in control. Look, and if that's true, then all the other stuff that happens that doesn't have to do with an evil human will, like sickness, and like tornadoes, and like hurricanes, and like earthquakes, and like car crashes. Trust me on this one, because it's all over the rest of Scripture. He is in control. See, if that short circuits the synapse of our brain, okay, this is the point. Okay? But trust Him. He says in the text, Exhibit A, those who thumb their nose at God. To that God appointed them. So He's saying, Believer, trust that God knows what He's doing. Though we may never know. Especially down here. He knows what He's doing. Trust Him even if the entire world is crumbling around you. Trust Him when you look at your own life in your own rebellious, sinful decisions back there four hours ago or four years ago that you took a wrong turn and you say, look at the results that are affecting me today. Trust Him in His sovereignty. When demons or evil people, or sickness, are affecting you. Trust Him. He says nothing, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because God Himself, the Sovereign One, is causing all things to work together for good to those who love Him. Peter's point is this honor is for you who believe. I'm going to close with a quote from Lauren Chandler, her blog site about six weeks ago. Lauren is 29 years old. Her husband, I think Matt, a 
very good preaching lead pastor in Dallas, Texas. I think he's 36. Uh, large church, I think at least 6,000 people. I can remember the day we were enjoying our family Thanksgiving up in the mountains. And it was that day that it happened and I found out about it. That He was trying to enjoy his and all of a sudden he collapsed on the floor. And he woke up in a hospital. He had a seizure. The reason was he had a tumor in his brain. A week later, they were slicing his skull open and to cut out what they could. And it's malignant and still dealing with treatment. Lauren, she writes on her blog about six weeks ago, quote, 13 years ago, a college student, she's referring to her husband Matt, 13 years ago, a college student sat among many his age, stunned by the answer to the question, For whom did Christ die? He would never be the same. In that sermon, the Lord used His human vessel, Pastor John Piper, to lay a foundation for what was to come for the young man and his future wife and family. For if the Lord had not so powerfully spoken through him, we wouldn't have the ground to stand on when we heard the words, brain cancer. Now I know God could have used a myriad of mouthpieces, but He sovereignly chose the Passion Conference in Austin, Texas in 1997. Two years later, as a college freshman, my heart was set aflame to say, Yes, Lord, whatever You have for me, my answer is yes, Lord. At that time, I had no idea I would be saying, Yes, Lord, I will walk the path of brain cancer with my husband for your glory and my joy. Isaiah 26, 8 says, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you. Your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. End quote. She concludes. So I ask you to pray. Pray that there will be another young man, another young woman, whose view of God is much too small, whose foundation will not be enough on which to stand when their world falls apart, whose purpose in life is the eternally dismal American dream instead of the infinitely joyous joining with the saints for the advancement of the Gospel to the ends of the earth. Pray they will be utterly 
ruined for His glory and their joy. Let's pray. Father Mace, You cause the answer to this prayer to happen in the people that are here in this room? Will you start a process where it needs to be? Will you continue a process where it's been started? Will you make us more dynamically sold out to your glory, your purposes in the gospel through our lives and in our lives. Without the answer to this prayer, it is impossible for us. Work mightily by your Spirit. In each and every soul. Continue to do that very directly now in these last five, six minutes. Do it through the words that we sing. Do and continue what you've already begun. To the glory of your great name and to the deep, real, genuine satisfaction of our soul. Stand.